This episode is brought to you by Haymakers Community Engagement Consultants. If you run a business or nonprofit working to make the world a better place, then visit wemakehay.com to see how Haymakers can help. This episode is also sponsored by RuralOrganizing.org. RuralOrganizing.org has been equipping and empowering rural changemakers since 2012. Visit RuralOrganizing.org for more information. When people think about your hometown, do they think, oh, that's a lousy place to live? Or, or the word hayseed to describe someone. Uh, is, is that a positive term or a negative term? Mm-hmm. Like that, that's not equated to uh, an income level or something like that. But people have an imagery and they say, hayseed, that means it's a yokel. It's, it's someone who's backwards thinking. They're uneducated. They're naive. And so there are those dimensions of advantage and disadvantage that come up about with our, our status and our representation. And um, rural America, they suffer from these things. Much of America's economic and community development decisions are made in urban centers, and this urban bias puts rural people at a real disadvantage. Today's guest, Nicholas Garcia, is a rural social scientist at The Ohio State University who studies the accessibility of rural communities for people with disabilities. On today's episode, we'll talk about the advantages and disadvantages of rurality on both micro and macro levels and how local leaders can turn their challenges into an opportunity for their community. I'm Matt Hildreth, and you're listening to Flyover Folk, exploring the progressive arts, culture, and politics of America's rural communities. So how do you group rural people? I mean, that's a pretty basic question, but I, the best definition of rural I've heard is not urban. <laughs> it's, it's the residual. It's the remainder. And so I always run into this question when you're talking about rural folks is, are you just talking about a concentrated demographic? Like there's just, it tends to be in, in some areas, although rural does not equal white, but at, yeah. you know, when you're talking about problems associated specifically with rural communities, are you talking about problems associated with like a distilled demographic or is there something specific to ruralness, which maybe is what you're getting at with your study mm-hmm. of spatial differences or whatever, but yeah, the, well, the, well the, this is, this is the struggle that researchers have because the way that we, we talk about rurality in general uh, in, in our everyday lives, it's not just population density. I mean, we don't say the moon is rural or something like that, and we won't say that Detroit is rural if it continues a population loss for 10 years. But in academia, there are these standards that come out where Department of Agriculture says, all right, you have less than 40,000 people, less than 20,000 people, you get into these little blocks of, of degrees of rurality. And that's one type of measure. And another type of measure is whether or not you're close to resources of the city. Are you on a commuting route into an urban center or not? Um, uh, do, do you have access to the same sorts of uh, number one hirers in the state or not? And so it's it can be about connectedness instead of just population density. Some people like to talk about cultural attributes, distinct cultural norms. Maybe it's the style of music. Maybe it's the way that you practice your religion that's a little different. Um, and then there are some uh, some other terms like Gemeinschaft and Geschelschaft where people start talking about kinship networks and whether or not there's a, a kind of a, a camaraderie or, or a kin-like interaction with people or if it's transactional. If Am I meeting you just so I can get a, a bagel from you? Am I meeting you just so I can cash my check uh, or is it something more? And so the, the more ties that you have... Uh, some people think of rurality as being the environment where we get away from just transactional uh, interactions and having these ones where everybody you know, they're the neighbors, 
and the family that you've grown up with known by name. So, but it, is there is there a link between those social connections and population density? I mean, that, that, that's that's a question that gets studied again and again. the The intuition is yes, um, but that 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 research gets troubled more and more because it gets hard to determine how we study our connections with one another. I mean, you run a podcast, you you have family out of state. Um, would you say that you have more connections? You have less connections because you're geographically dif- distant from family that you might have out of state? Or would you say that technology allows you to maintain ties and build stronger ties with people you've never met face-to-face? It, it just gets really hard to talk about how it is that, that we make these bonds and judge the quality of them uh, and, and whether or not our physical space uh, matters in a world that's online. And this is something that my research kind of capitalizes on. I know that there's a broadband gap. Uh, rural America doesn't have the same access to the Internet as you do in Columbus, Ohio. And so if I'm a person with a disability, telecommuting, the ability to work online or something, that opens up opportunities for me to escape the one job opportunity in my town and start working abroad. Not if I'm in a county that's remote. And so when, when I do my research, I, I, I don't really drive around from county to county and do interviews with wheelchair users anymore. Now I'm the guy that's looking at data and I'm looking at uh, differences in places that show there is not an internet provider. Uh, there is a, a lower population density. There is only one employer for the entire county. And, and when I'm doing these big national analyses, I tend to look at the data and I, I, I lose some of these cultural considerations of reality. So that's a drawback to the research yeah. perspective. But it's supposed to add this idea that I can speak about the nation instead of just my hometown. Or, right. Mm-hmm. So so how, talk, maybe talk a little bit about... Um, this idea of disadvantage and is that quantifiable? I mean, can you say this, this community or this person is more disadvantaged than that? Yeah. Disadvantage is really tricky because there are multiple perspectives uh, on, on a personal level that we all have, but they also translate into academic perspectives. Some people say, you know what? There really isn't uh, such a thing as disadvantage. There's a lack of effort or there's bad behaviors or something like that. So people who are bad off, there might be inequality or something like that, but that's the individual's fault. Um, those people might struggle to explain why you know, veterans might have really high unemployment rates or, or why women make less than men. Is it really that these people just don't work hard or, or, or they're lazy? So, so the other folks would say there's something structural about it. We should be looking at what measures of inequality are. We should look at persistent poverty. We should look at persistent unemployment. Uh, we should look at education levels and whether or not those uniform measures are, are consistently bad in certain places or not, not bad, sorry, underperforming compared to other places. And then some other people would say, forget all these measures. I mean, uh, you define how it is that we establish what's an advantage and what's a disadvantage. What's an advantage today might be a disadvantage tomorrow, who knows? And so some of these people think about representations and power dynamics, and they'll say, forget about your income. Uh, think about whether or not people listen when you speak. Think about uh, um, when people think about your hometown. Do they think, oh, that's a lousy place to live? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or the word hayseed to describe someone. Uh, is, is that a positive term or a negative term? Mm-hmm. That, that's not equated to uh, an income level or something like that. But mm-hmm. people have an imagery and they say, 
hayseed. That means it's a yokel. It's it's someone who's backwards thinking. They're uneducated. They're naive. Um, and so there are those dimensions of advantage and disadvantage that come up about with our, our status and our representation. And um, rural America, they suffer from these things. There, there's an urban bias that gets studied in literature, whether or not we're looking at behaviors mm-hmm. uh, um, or, or, or income or just representations in media or something like that. Um, there are other di- dimensions of disadvantage that I think are important and probably understudied in academia, but that a lot of us can see pretty easily. Like if I asked you who the most powerful people in Washington, D.C. are, I doubt that you're pointing to the most remote rural districts or something like that. Right. They, they tend to be the big national superstars from metropolitan centers with the most money. And so there are these political dimensions of, of rural disadvantage too. If, if let, Let's say that I want a grant to bring back to my hometown. Right. I, I come from a small town. Well, who's going to write the grant? Who do they list as contacts and references mm-hmm. when they're writing to uh, the state capital or, or the federal uh, uh, capital in D.C.? Who do they write to and who do they reference? Like if, if I'm nested within some metropolitan center yeah. and I know banking representatives or I know a lineage of people who all get elected uh, with the same last name, like those give me some kind of leverage when it's time to bring money home to my district. Right. And that's another dimension of, of rural disadvantage that we see, but it's not really studied well. In, and I've heard those areas with with a lack of, of, of civic resource called civic deserts, which mm-hmm. I thought was an interesting uh, phrase, which um, I, I think makes a lot of sense based on, you know, having lived in not necessarily, not necessarily a remote rural community, but um, but in some ways... Um, sort of a disconnected uh, rural community, um, but I, but I'm wondering about those disadvantages and if they're, um, or, or, or going back to the phrase urban bias, mm-hmm. because I think some people hear that phrase and that it, it feels a little bit like um, liberal media, uh, okay. Or, or, okay. or it feels a little bit like you know people just kind of complaining. Um, and I'm, and I'm wondering if from a, from an, from an understanding of it, of a disadvantage, you know, if you could talk a little bit more about that, um, the, the disadvantages associated with like kind of a, an urban bias. Uh, yeah. Let, let me make things very practical. I'll give you, I'll give you a little story. Um, I, w- I was attached to uh, a nonprofit. I, I won't name it, but there, there's a, there's a term called grant grubbing, and grant grubbing is when a nonprofit starts applying for lots of grants in the hope that they'll get the money, and then they'll worry about how they deliver on the grant later. Well, this one nonprofit I've never never heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> never, this never happened. Never heard of a grant grubbing or mission creep or anything like that. <laughs> no, <Nope>, doesn't happen. <laughs> well, well uh, I, I worked for a nonprofit, and they had applied for this USDA, this Department of Agriculture grant, uh, to assist uh, senior citizens and people with disabilities in rural Ohio. And uh, I found out that they had this grant for three years, and they were in the last year of their grant. And all those three years, they delivered services to a total of two people. So thousands of dollars just there. And their explanation was, well, we don't know what's going on. I mean, uh, we have all this money, and the Columbus Dispatch, or the city paper here, uh, um, it runs ads, and uh, you know, I guess people just don't need help. And so at the time... I had been reading a lot about 
sampling and survey design. I, I just didn't really think it was a good idea to target an urban center if you wanted to reach people with disabilities and senior citizens in rural areas. You should interact with their papers. You should see where people go in those areas to make contact. And you should think about whether or not the people you most want to reach go out as much as, uh, um, I, I, I guess, the CEO of this nonprofit. So uh, lo and behold, uh, I found out that there were dozens upon dozens upon dozens of seniors and they weren't connected to an urban network of commuting. They weren't connected to uh, a library system uh, where we could visit libraries and, and encounter them. They weren't connected to a, a number of senior s services. They were connected to uh, their local church. Um, they were connected to their local school. Um, they were connected to their local gazette uh, um, or whatever their weekly uh, paper would be. And so there's this perception that well, there are no people out there because urban people don't make contact with them and needs aren't recognized, dollars aren't reached as intended. Uh, they're just cut off from the world and assumed as if, well, they're doing fine. I think that's a, a specific type of barrier uh, um, or disadvantage that gets introduced that um, is different in urban environments. I mean, in an urban environment, um, I know that there are a dozen different governmental services that I could go to through the city of Columbus. If I live in the city or town of Smithville, Ohio, I know that I have to go to the county government instead. I know that the county government has to absorb uh, dozens of services without having an agent, an office, and a phone number for each of those services. So the quality of services that right. I get in those rural areas is worse, and uh, the way that I interact with federal agents, mm -hmm. governmental representatives, and the way that I get somebody to respond to needs that I have mm -hmm. as a person with a disability living across from a cornfield, like, it's markedly different than uh, um, in a city. It's not to say people don't have hard times all over, but it's so much worse because of this aspect of remoteness um, and, and this, this lack of interest to even make contact uh, or make an effort to contact rural Americans. And I wonder if that's where some of this rural resentment comes from. <laughs> I, Poli I would, yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. I mean, uh, when you think about the slick politician, the word slick, that tends to, to conjure up images of the type of car, the type of building, and, and I imagine these, these metropolitan uh, sorts of city slickers, right? Uh, um, and I don't like those people. I think that they're out for themselves. And I know that I can't rely on them to fend for me and my family. So who do I look to? Me and my family. And, and I might want to remove myself from the idea of uh, um, a, a national government that's, that, that will represent me and my interests. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we see all kinds of, 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 of people that want to withdraw from the idea of a federal government altogether. And, right. and, and those take roots, not in urban environments, but in rural environments. And we don't have to talk about s sovereign citizens or, or militia movements to, to get there. It doesn't have to be that extreme. Some mm -hmm. people just give up on it or, or they don't like where their taxes are going. And I mean, I, I think that some of those sentiments are understandable. Yeah. 
So going back to how you identify these communities, I'm picturing, um, this is like an old movie now, but like the matrix with all the <laughs> numbers coming down. Oh, the it screen. is old, isn't it? Oh no. <laughs> but yeah. the numbers coming down the screen as you're like looking into the data to identify mm-hmm. the picture that starts emerging in terms of a, a disadvantaged uh, community. But can you talk a little bit about those indicators of, of, of what is, a what is considered to be a disadvantaged rural community? Um, so there, there are persistent poverty indi- indicators. And so those just mean that uh, over a number of years that uh, a county has had higher than average uh, poverty rates. They're not going down. They're not moving. So generation after generation, you can have intergenerational poverty. And there's, so- there's something fixed about the poverty rate itself. Um, so there, there are specific regions within the United States that are typified uh, by persistent poverty counties. Appalachia, Appalachia, however you choose to pronounce it, um, it's made up uh, of a majority of persistent poverty counties. There, there are um, counties within the Delta region of the South, mm-hmm. persistent poverty count- counties, generation after generation, year after year, higher than national average levels of poverty. And then when we talk about Native Americans and reservation lands or sovereign lands, um, persistent poverty over and over again. It's higher than average uh, national rates of, or higher than national average rates of poverty. It's intergenerational. It's persistent year after year after year. Um, some people will choose other metrics. I mean, if, if we don't even think about the U.S. example, uh, you might think about uh, um, whether or not there's there's hunger or starvation. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why I said if we don't think about the U.S. example is because we can conjure up people who face hunger day to day, and we think about childhood poverty, and we don't think about that in the U.S., but, you know, in fact, those same indicators of poverty, child hunger, uh, and going to bed hungry, missing meals, having one meal a day, uh, those are things that happen throughout rural America, too. So when you mentioned mentioned a few different uh, geographic regions, um, You know the you, the South and Appalachia mm-hmm. and uh, reservation. Uh, what are the common characteristics across those uh, demographics that that might lead to that persistent poverty? Um, well, well, so, th- this gets a little tricky, and uh, well, uh, an acquaintance of mine talks about things like a, a lack of. Uh, legal norms and legal representation uh, that can lead to predatory practices where uh, a company comes in, is not invested in the community, and takes the profits outside of the community. If there's environmental harm, it's the problem of the community, and it's not the problem of the people who own the land outside of the community. Um, if there is uh, legal representation that's supposed to be had, the, the government representatives don't live at or frequent the community at all. Uh, so I, I I hate to point at political things over and over again, but um, there is a lack of, of legal representation that is capitalized on uh, economically by external actors. So there are extractive industries, so coal extraction or uranium mining, these sorts of things, they run rampant in, in these kinds of lands where, where people take a profitive, profitable commodity, they'll make billions upon billions of dollars in it, and they won't reinvest in the community. The people making the money don't even live there. Um, like 
those are things that you see uh, across the res or, or, or throughout Appalachia. And, um, you know, there, there, there are a number of uh, marginalized racial groups um, that, that typify these areas, too. Of course, there's Native Americans. And uh, uh, in, in, in the Delta, in the Mississippi Delta, uh, it's the African-American population. And Appalachia, one of the reasons why Appalachian-Americans are recognized as a minority is, is because of their lack of representation. It's intergenerational. They are preyed upon. That sort of thing. So, um, it, I, I I have difficulty saying that the racial composition is the reason why uh, people are taken advantage of. But I will say that people uh, remain in a particular place. There's no in migration where uh, uh, people are flocking to these counties so that right. they can give back or or participate in a thriving economy or or help build a community. And the ability of people to leave these areas, um, well, first of all, they might not want to. Uh, that's where their family and their history are. Secondly, it's hard to leave uh, if you don't know anyone who would uh, um, act as a reference for a job, uh, who would tell you where a job would be, who would co-sign on a lease, anything like that. It gets hard to leave. Um, and, and then economically, it's just expensive to leave. So. So, for so you have this poverty in place, and you have the same sorts of people who are taken advantage of, a lot of times by external actors. Yeah. So for these for for folks in these um, disadvantaged communities, what's what's working? I mean, you kind of have, have a, um, a a good perspective at the at the national level, and I'm and I'm wondering. You know where are you th- where are you seeing things working? So th- this is interesting because so- sociologists are usually good at pointing out problems and, and bad at uh, confirming solutions or, or coming up with solutions. Uh, I, I happen to uh, attend a number of regional science meetings where, where people just. There's a tendency to to point to education and the impact on education, but there are these problems of migration and brain drain where once the people get the skills they take off and they go to where there is money and the money doesn't get invested in the community where they're from. What I like to do is look at the processes and the patterns that I see see repeated over and over, regardless of scale, regardless of place. Um, In international development, one of the things that helps for uh, securing a sustainable increase in livelihood is whether you can capture revenue. If you can keep the money that, that and resources that your area and your community, your region is sending out to the world, if you can keep some of that and keep control, then you can keep not just economic growth as a spike, but you can have the governance, the infrastructure set up so everybody can improve from that resource. Uh, local control and, and the infrastructure to do things with it and distribute it across the area. That's very important. And we see that throughout uh, South America and Central America and so forth. Well, in, in the United States, we see the same sorts of things. So fracking, well, when I talk about hydraulic fracturing of natural gas, um, people will either cheer or jeer at it. And it's a very, very politically charged. You may have come from a community that's been through a boom and bust cycle. It made lots of promises. It came through. They laid pipe. Some workers came in, and they left, and nobody was any better in terms of a job, but some people got really rich off of it. Those people hate it, and there was economic growth, but not for the community. The the area didn't see benefit, even though some people did. There are other communities where 
uh, they worked for revenue capture, they planned for some kind of environmental protections, they planned for increased policing, and those people might, might say, hey, this is awesome, it worked for our town. Uh, um, and it, it's not that there's one solution that will work for every place. Sure. It's not that you capitalize on an energy boom or a wind boom or something like that. It's, it's not whether or not one industry, like education, is profitable. It's what happens to the revenue that's gained from this enterprise. Mm -hmm. Does it leave the community? Does it only go to one person in the community? Or does the entire area benefit? And so the more that benefit is, is, is distributed across an area, the better a place does. Mm -hmm. uh, but if there's not something to keep it in the community or distribute it among multiple people, then you run the, the risk of that resource just being gone. It's capitalized on by by one person, and they might not even live and there long. Is that like a county, city, state? I mean, policy, or I mean, where where is that? Is that just increasing taxes on those industries? What is? Well, it, it need not be taxes. I mean, this this could be a behavioral thing where you know the 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 farmer makes it rich that their land is now profitable. You are a millionaire if you own farmland. Great. Do you have an increase in wages to your workers? Do you invest in the Rotary Club? Uh, how is money being given back? It doesn't have to be by government, but mm. all, all I'm saying is that process of revenue capture and distribution, that is what is absolutely essential. If you don't have that, it just means that the person who is selected to have the resource and profit from the resource, they continue doing just fine, mm -hmm. and they might, may, might not give back to the community. Eh. Yeah. One other question I have, uh, and this is probably one of my last questions, but um, one of the things, and uh, I don't know if this is the best data, talking to a data person, uh, <laughs> but uh, it's been surprising, so I'll keep it general, how much um, in in the rural advocacy world, uh, folks, folks on broadband, that's a big one, I think that's important, as you mentioned, um, and, and health care to a certain point. But uh, the big thing is egg, you know, mm -hmm. the, if you're in Iowa, it's ethanol, you know, mm -hmm. if you're in, um, you know, some of these other Western States, it's farming and ranching uh, and that, and that from a political or politician standpoint, it's like they have those talking points, you know, they know what to say on those mm -hmm. on, on, on that front but most rural people don't live on farms and mm -hmm. they don't um, own land right um, and I think this is true across the country but most uh, um, work in healthcare, in uh, education and in, in, in a lot of the service providing industries so I wonder if you have any thoughts on the importance of investing in, in education um, from a, from even just a job creation standpoint in rural communities or investing in healthcare, you know, like if you have a rural doctor come to your town, um, that's, that's going to be a high paying job mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. there that, uh, you know, might be probably the best job in town. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that's something I hear a lot about. Yeah. So, so the absence of, um, higher education or, or a school, within eight miles of you um, or a hospital in your county. Um, these are all things that make rural counties disadvantaged. So if the question is, will providing those 
be an asset uh, to, to relieve an advantage, this gets tricky. I would say, oh, absolutely. Immediately, it would relieve a, a number of health disadvantages because you have a doctor in your area. But unfortunately, the, the planners, the economists, and the politicians will say things like, well, it's not cost-effective. The amount of money it takes to provide services to these people who are so dispersed is so expensive. Uh, I would argue that those same people who, who make these claims, um, they usually argue for some kind of magnet for development, uh, some kind of point of, of redistribution uh, of resources into uh, a community. Believe it or not, hospitals can be uh, an important magnet for resources to be kept into a community. So, so for example, rather than recruiting a, a, a major corporation, smoke snack, smoke stack chasing, you, mm-hmm. you put in a hospital, right? For so, the same for the same economic development reasons, right? Right. So, but but what's important is to get the capital to locate a hospital there and sustain it in the first place. I mean, there are, this is where the federal government is incredibly important. Uh, federal subsidies to maintain hospitals in rural areas, yeah. those can pay doctor salaries, which are higher than average uh, earnings in these rural uh, counties. It would be helpful if they rewarded doctors with uh, additional funds for, for housing if they stay within the county yeah. uh, where, where they're practicing, of course, because that's more revenue capture within the county, more tax dollars, more money spent within there. But, but hospitals usually have other amenities about them. They, they can have uh, food supply chains that they're connected to, not only to support the patients, but mm-hmm. their families, too. Uh, that leads to its own chain of, of jobs that isn't specialized, that yep. is accessible. Um, it, it, it becomes an important avenue to channel money into these communities while giving health benefits. And those health benefits are important, mind you. I mean, if I can have rehabilitative therapy so that I'm back in the workforce again, right. or, or, or um, <laughs> I, I mean, that that matters um, in a very important way for the county person, for the federal purse, too. So, so the farm bills coming up in 2017 or 2018 or whenever they get to it, who knows under this mm-hmm. uh, uh, current government situation. But um, so let's say that you have... I don't know, a manageable amount of money, Mm $500,000. And maybe walk me through that. I don't, I don't know if this might not be your area of expertise, but you probably know more than, (laughs) than a lot of people. So let's just go with it. But what is, what does it mean in terms of a disadvantage to the community for the federal government to send that to a farm Mm. to, to sort of, you know, um, subsidize the, 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 the agri- agricultural production, mm-hmm. which obviously has benefits in terms of reducing the cost of food and, and so on, mm-hmm. or investing it into um, rural development, uh, which the Farm Bill oversees as well, in terms of you know, uh, education or, or, um, mm-hmm. or, or health care. So just maybe walk, walk me through that a little bit. See, th- this is tricky because... Um, it's not that either of those is the golden opportunity and the other one is the poison pill. It's not that farms are bad and investing in farms is bad. And it's not that rural development is always good wherever those dollars go to. Um, 
because they can all go to the same people. It's possible. And it might not be people who would benefit or it might not be organizations that would help a community. So if money does go to farms, let's say it's a large-scale farm operation, which it likely is because farm bills can tend to represent the biggest lobbying forces instead of uh, the most people. Um, well, large farming operations tend to have seasonal labor structures. Structures They tend not to have a promotional uh, structure where you advance within the organization. They tend not to have retirement benefits, health benefits, those sorts of things. Um, so the money goes to seasonally sustain uh, a large number of people, um, but it, it tends to trap low wages without um, sustainable growth for an area and for a multitude of people. So it tends to benefit uh, large-scale farms specifically without necessarily providing uh, mobility, the the ability for workers to actually improve their situation over the long term. Uh, so it's not bad that money goes there. It's just not necessarily going to improve or provide a route out of poverty or towards upward mobility. When you start investing money into infrastructure, the idea is that that's supposed to give some kind of new mobility pr- potential, just potential in general. Education is supposed to be highly correlated with mobility. It's not that having a higher education means you earn more, but the likelihood of earning more matters. Will that money stay within the community? Who knows? The The hope is that whatever educational facility is built uh, provides a route for networking uh, of dollars to and from them there. It could be research dollars. It could be that sweet, sweet college money where, where, where they pay for uh, satellite research facilities or something like mm-hmm. that. And then a, a community could benefit from that and have 15 new hires within that, that small town. Uh, and it's good money that's above the county average or something like that. I mean, that could be good. Uh, hospitals, same sort of thing. It's providing the channel uh, for development and upward mobility. Big problem is... Um, are, are these investments long-term? Mm-hmm. Um, will there be reinvestment? Um, and is there an assurance that the building of infrastructure and, and the promise of investment is going to be genuine? Mm-hmm. When, when I talk about grant grubbing as a nonprofit phenomenon, yeah. it's not just a nonprofit phenomenon. Everybody would love that sweet, sweet money. And if the federal government throws the money at an opportunity for improvement, mm-hmm. Uh, people could come out of the woodwork. Who knows? So, so let's say you're a small town mayor or a, <laughs> or a city council or, or something like that. Where would be your, uh, how would you try and uh, uh, track down those investments? Oh, that that is a very good question. Hmm. Let me see. Ah, well, unfortunately, um, it, <laughs> All right. When, when I demonize people for being politically convenient, it's very convenient on my part because um, you do want to get the most bang for your buck. You never know whether those dollars will return. And unfortunately, <laughs> uh, that, that can trick you into short-term investments with the biggest payoff immediately. But I, I, I would probably prior, prioritize the things with the, the longest time frame of growth rather than the highest rate of growth. So um, uh, an infrastructure project that lasts 10 years with, with, a, with a low payoff might be better than uh, a jobs program that lasts for two years with really high salaries uh, guaranteed within those two years. Um, the, uh, 
making that uh, long-term stable supply of money in the community, that choice alone does a lot to tweak where I would make my decisions. Um, like I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a disabilities guy. Uh, I think a lot about seniors and people with disabilities. So I'll always be prioritizing some of these marginalized groups uh, whose well-being is most threatened in these areas because, you know, uh, it's not just about growth, but it's about well-being of people in the long term too. Boy, oh boy. But if you want me to be specific, what should people invest in? Huh. It's, it seems like it's so geographically dependent too. I mean, uh, I you'll you'll hear lots of success stories about the the town that got together to invest in the wind turbine or something like that, but that doesn't work everywhere. It would depend on where I was, but yeah, that could reduce cost to every household and generate revenue in the long term. It just depends on where I would live. I mean, unfortunately, some of the really lucrative businesses. Or, or growth opportunities are bad in the long term. If I built a private prison, I don't feel comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel comfortable advocating for that because uh, um, my county would lose in the long run, but it would give me some sweet, sweet money right off the bat. Uh, I have no solutions. <laughs> no solutions. <laughs> well, maybe that's. And if I were if I were a councilman, I'd open it up for bidding, and then who starts bidding? I mean, <laughs> uh, I run into the same sorts of problems that I'll critique over and over again. These are wicked problems. Yeah, who's going to come out there and talk to me? Right. Um, well, so, so so here here's 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 the 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 example that just sort of haunts me. Um, there's an I think it's Manchester, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar? It's on the Ohio River. Yeah, down by Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they they lost two power plants. They're they're on on schedule to lose two power plants in uh, the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Entire town voted for Trump, and CNN did this whole piece on this plea of these voters um, to to have you know Donald Trump save their power plant, mm-hmm. um, and it's just not in the cards. And you you look at that and you sort of say, you know, let's say you're a uh, a mayor or somebody mm-hmm. there that cares about the community, you know, what do you even do? Yeah. Um, and I think that's where a lot of this frustration yeah. that, that plays out politically, you know, mm-hmm. people see because it's, they are wicked problems and, mm-hmm. and it's not even on people's radar, let alone, you know, viable options for people to solve yeah. it. I mean, well, all right. So there, there's an inverted way about looking at, uh, ideas about, growth in the community and that's to look at where you're experiencing losses in the community instead are you in a community that's spending all of its money on um home heating assistance or something like that well it'd be great to invest in apprenticeship programs for home heating and repair or something like that it it provides educational opportunities job training opportunities and it fixes up shabby housing so that people aren't freezing uh through the winter time uh, is is there an opioid crisis where you live? Well, wouldn't it be great if if uh, there were dollars available that you could get for um, first responder training, for um, uh, federal research dollars, those sorts of things? 
if you can treat where your losses are as an opportunity for development and growth, I mean, that, that could be really great. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you're losing money because of um, health costs associated with the landfill, um, I mean, sometimes targeting where the losses are coming from mm-hmm. uh, can prevent you from uh, sinking your entire community chest every year um, and, and developing some kind of growth opportunity around that. But th- this is why it's so difficult to, to speak about these things generally is that yeah, uh, I, I've driven to 88 counties in Ohio, all 88 of them, and it's, it's hard to tell you that Smithville, Ohio's solution is the same as Canton, Ohio, is the same as Columbus, Ohio, or, or Manchester, or Westchester, or Westerville. Um, they all have different sorts of assets and problems and costs, and uh, that makes it really, really difficult to come up with the, the one solution. Um, but revenue capture and uh, properly targeting where the community is losing while preserving the most vulnerable, those are kind of like the guiding principles that I'd operate on if I were a, a council member or a trustee or whatever my role might be. Well, awesome. <laughs> Anything else to add? Anything we missed? Now, when you mentioned civic deserts earlier, do you consider the strength of a local newspaper or at, um, the amount of local writers to be part of that yeah. uh, deficit? I mean, so you may have saw that this small town newspaper mm-hmm. got the Pulitzer. They live in Steve King's district. And all of America that pays attention to politics want to know how does such a horrible man keep mm-hmm. getting reelected. And I would say uh, it's a local media problem. Okay. And so this this is a man that has not, when you talk about somebody that takes advantage of communities. Mm -hmm. Um, You can go through his website. You can go through his um, speeches. You could do a content analysis of all the stuff he talks about. Rural very rarely comes up. Mm. His, that Democrat, that, um, uh, his 39 counties or whatever he represents in the fourth district of Iowa uh, is overwhelmingly shrinking. The population loss there Mm. is killing them. The only communities that are growing are these growing Latino populations. I see. Um, and so the number of people that understand those dynamics and that feel like Steve King, uh, that, that, that feel like there's things that Steve King can do to make their lives better through policy mm-hmm. is so few and far between because you have like the Fort Dodge messenger on one side mm-hmm. and then uh, two hours away, is the Sioux City Journal. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you have this remote space between. And halfway between, there's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. <laughs> but not every rural community would have that. I understand In that. fact, that, you know, it was all over national news when they won. So, um, so, yeah, I think very much the connection between communities being taken advantage of and civic engagement, but mm-hmm. also um, uh, local media is uh, is is critical. So I, I should tell you uh, about another project that uh, my partner and I worked on. Uh, my, my wife Evie, she was a she got her journalism masters at the Scripps School in Athens, Ohio, at Ohio University, and um, she she got me interested in, in newspapers. Uh, um, that's playing this vital role in in civic identity and, and power dynamics within a community and representation. 
and um, she had mentioned the American newspaper crisis. And when she mentioned it, um, I, it hadn't occurred to me because I, I was on the ground running with some of these gazettes to try and reach rural people and advertise yeah. there. Everybody was reading the gazettes. When they advertise in uh, a Columbus dispatch, nobody reads the ads or anything like that. It's kind of taken for granted. But yeah. some of the local gazettes were the life's blood, the livelihood of some of these communities. So I, I asked Evie, you know, well, the American newspaper crisis, uh, where is it occurring? And she said, well, it's national. I said, well, who writes about this? And then she showed me some of the Pew research things. And, um, I found out that the American newspaper crisis was documenting the decline in circulation revenue among the top 20 circulating newspapers oh, yeah. in the United States. Uh, so I, I designed a survey, and, and we surveyed a number of uh, rural newspapers around the United States. And during the same period where uh, national newspapers were going down, um, increased readership, the circulation, those sorts of things, that was being experienced within these rural communities. It was going down or going up? It was going up in yeah. rural communities. Uh, so I thought, oh, oh my, this is, this is wonderful. The, yeah. the, the life's blood, it's, it's pumping, it's thriving. And I started to develop a paper about that. And then when I started to contact certain survey respondents for follow-ups, um, they no longer work there. As yeah. a matter of fact, the editor of a particular newspaper that I used to contact was now the shared editor among six different newspapers or 12 different newspapers. So between uh, 2012 and 2015, uh, it's between 600 and 800 of these rural newspapers got bought up like that by three different companies. And so when we talk about ideas about rural disadvantage, there really is a lack of a, a local voice that's been gobbled up by some of these huge national metropolitan entities. And I, I feel really bad for people in small towns. They're used to their gazette over and over again, and their editor doesn't work there anymore. Yep. And the same story that they get is the same story that people two states away are getting. And that's something that, well, that I worry about. And I hope, I hope that the... The most recent Pulitzer uh, uh, winner will, will reinvigorate the idea of uh, having. Well, so there's there's two two rural journalists that uh, I have a ton of respect for, and one of the Cullen brothers, and their uh, and one of their sons is also involved, uh, and the other one is Doug Burns, and he was on uh, episode seven of Flyover Folk, mm-hmm. and uh, he would just, I mean, you're you're sort of you know, carrying his message because his view was that in this election, um, you know, he's coming from Iowa where they have direct access to the candidates, but the questions and the interactions and the engagement of the voters Mm -hmm. was nationalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so voters were showing up because the reporters were not asking questions, even about ethanol Mm or rural development or access to healthcare. You know, they're asking questions about, national narratives. And in his point was that Hillary Clinton had this far superior rural development policy. Uh-huh. Um, especially in Iowa, he said that um, Hillary would could, could go toe to toe with like the Iowa economic rural economic development mm-hmm. person. Um, but there was no venue to communicate it because there was no local, newspapers and this is a guy who's interviewed obama like seven times and you know he has direct access i mean he's a rural Mm. journalist now he's bought up i think regional papers and so it's a local 
regional entity, but it's rural Northwest Iowa owned. Yeah. So you do have yeah. multiple papers, but the mm-hmm. readership and the demographics would be sort of interconnected. And I think that's its way of managing yeah. this crisis. But yeah, it, it's that connection to understanding who we are in the world mm-hmm. is, 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 is key. And I think that, you know, you go to the bar and you find out what happened and yeah. what did city council do and who's the uh-huh. good candidate and stuff like that. But when you read the paper, it's sports. Uh, yeah. And a, maybe a column from a, <laughs> a guy that has too much time on his hands. <laughs> it's a little bit, a little bit cranky. So I think that's, that's an interesting point. I think it's, it's very much connected, but you know, it's like when I grow up, growing up in South Dakota and you made national news, mm-hmm. you know, usually it'd be like for a, a blizzard or something like that. And it's like, Oh my God, this town two hours away was covered in the national news. Everybody let's talk about it. And, mm-hmm. um, or I still have this thing when I go to a, a big city and there's a, it was, it's a location that was in a movie. I have to say this was, this was the location for that movie. This was the location. Cause it's like this <laughs> idea that where I'm from is covered in the media is still sort of foreign to me. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I think there's a, there's a strong connection there. Nice. So thanks for flying. Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, that's all so, uh, should come up with a way to sum it up this is why i don't script it because i suck at scripting it all right so let me just say like what i what i think in terms of what we discussed so i think that it's i think that there's a lot of people that feel like they're at a disadvantage in Mm -hmm. rural communities Mm -hmm. and i think it's validating to hear that that's true. Um, and I think your research is, I think it, it's, it's important for that, especially cause you, you know, you look you're looking at vulnerable communities. Um, well, I, I hope that's val- validating, but not disheartening because yeah. there, you know, there, there are solutions. Some of them involve making government responsive and making it work for you. And, um, if if I'm talking about things like having represented representation from your government to intervene on your behalf, um, or to make sure that your county or your town gets to keep development dollars, I mean that's something where we have agency. Yeah, um, we're we're not hayseeds, or we're, we're we're not just remote people that have to be invisible or anything like that. There there is hope out there, but it involves work. Involves organization, and um, some of that involves a lot of um, initiative um, on behalf of rural communities, rural in- individuals, and also allies from other regions uh, to, to come together and, and help build networks of, of advocacy. Um, something I didn't talk about, <laughs> which I think is very important, is that at, at the federal level, for the last I don't know how many years there's been a stagnation in terms of policy making and policy passage. At the same time, there's been a huge movement at the sub-state level, at the county level and the local level for organized interests to come in. The American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, they'll come into small towns, small counties, and they'll, they'll, uh, they'll have these mock pieces of legislation. They'll say something like, this is a policy 
your county can pass it, and you'll you'll have this rate of economic growth. There is an organization, but unfortunately, that kind of organization comes from people looking to profit outside of the county. Mm-hmm. Fracking interests, gun interests, those sorts of things. And it'd be really great if there were people interests. Right. <laughs> right. Well, thanks for joining us. And I uh, appreciate you taking the time to discuss to discuss this. Pleasure. Cheers. I'm Matt Hildreth, and you've been listening to Flyover Folk, brought to you today by Haymakers Community Engagement Consultants and RuralOrganizing.org. Our music today and every day comes from Brutal Bear, based out of Wichita, Kansas. For more information about them and this podcast, visit flyoverfolk.com. <laughs>